Hey guys, welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast. I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Kurt, great to see you and great that we could be doing this on the Zoom format while we're working remotely. I think we're now coming up on week eight of our remote work and um, there's so much that's happened. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Great. It's good to see you, Rich. You look healthy. I hope you're doing well with your families. Both Rich and I have pretty large families and we're hunkered down in Washington, D.C. Obviously, we've had tea leaves up and running for a couple of years now. We've had a host of guests, but we're kicking off a new phase as we continue to engage in virtual work. And so we wanted to begin again with a conversation between the two of us to talk a little bit about what's going on in the region, what's going on in American politics. We have a lot to talk about today. So Rich, let me ask you just right off the bat, if you had to give the United States a grade for its performance to date, and you know, you normally evaluate a country, a leading country like the United States, your ability domestically to handle the challenge, number one, number two, to help others, particularly poor nations with capacity, right, to deal with the challenge, and third, to organize a global response to be the leader that brings together the G20, G7, other major countries in order to deal with the challenge. So if you had to give us a grade on each of those sectors and an overarching grade, what would that be, Rich? Yeah. So Kurt, I feel like this is a giant softball that you've just lofted over the plate because I think you know what the answer is and you've written widely about this. And I want to get into this, but obviously we have from a federal Washington, D.C., executive branch perspective, we have largely failed or been anemic. And I don't, I don't mean that directed at the public health professionals or the career people, but there has been a dramatic lack of leadership from Washington. Now, I will give, there are a couple exceptions to that. I actually think the Congress has performed pretty well I think Secretary Mnuchin's negotiations with the Congress have been effective. Obviously, we've been in dire circumstances, but it's been bipartisan, it's been quick, and it's been a lot of money. Obviously, the programs have a lot of kinks to work out in them, but that institution has moved. The state governments, and you can rank them in order of effectiveness, I think we've seen a lot of really impressive performances from the states. Yeah. Mike DeWine in Ohio to Governor Cuomo in New York, uh, Governor Murphy in New Jersey, right here where I am in Maryland, Governor Hogan. There's two Republicans, two Democrats. So I want to make sure people know this is not a partisan observation. But I think you and I have been, I don't know what the right word is, dumbfounded at the lack of leadership from our central government. That's how I I would say it. It's It's hard to give them a good grade. And it plays into this larger kind of geopolitical narrative, which I know you've you've actually talked a lot about and written a lot about, and all roads kind of lead back to China. Yeah. You know, I I did a piece a little while ago, Rich, and in it, there was a line that said, you know, if we're not careful, this will lead to what, you know, what's described in international relations theory as a Suez moment, meaning... You know, was it Suez in the 1950s that really it, it hit Britain about its overextension in global politics, the erosion of British power more generally. And after that, Britain was never really the same on the global stage. 
I hoped I, I didn't predict this, but I'm saying if we're not careful, there's a fulfilling quality to this. There's something about, I think you have to accept as a governing philosophy that you want to be a global leader, that you want America to have a seat at the table, that you want to set direction, that you want to be a provider for developing countries. And I'm just not sure that's where the current leaders are. And Secretary Pompeo, when he was at a meeting of international leaders recently, it was a debate about what to call the virus, not about how to set up a global response led by the United States. The truth is, Rich, even though we believe this vaccine is relatively stable, if we can't take steps to aggressively go after it, there is the worry that if it continues unabated in the developing world in Africa or parts of Asia, that it could come roaring back in a slightly different form and have just as devastating a consequence as it's already had in the United States. And so for me, I mean, everything, almost every day I see something that, that confounds me. The fact that one of the largest global gatherings to look at a disease took place two days ago, hosted by the EU, in which they raised multiple billions of dollars to focus on the vaccine and distribution. And the fact that the United States was not in attendance, that, that was astonishing to me. And then, of course, we read today that there are now questions that are emerging largely from inside the administration that maybe we, we got the numbers wrong with respect to the coronavirus. Most experts believe that by far and away, we have underestimated the number of people that have been infected and died. But I think the president and some of his team are going the other direction, saying, no, these numbers have been inflated. And then the the move away from a coronavirus daily update, I think it just raises profound concerns. I don't actually understand what the strategy is going forward. I don't think this is a disease that you can wish away. And, you know, in truth, it has a foothold in the United States now. And as we open up, most of the people that we work with on our daily update, Rich, believe that we are poised for a dramatic increase in cases that could indeed overrun our healthcare capabilities over the course of the next several weeks and months. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's quite discouraging. I do want to ask you specifically about a couple pieces that you've written in the last few weeks. One was a foreign affairs piece that got a lot of attention, and it was really about this question about whether is China going to use this moment in the global order to kind of overtake us? And you have some really interesting kind of observations and conclusions there, and I wonder if you could just take us through a little bit of that. But you, you do start with saying Washington botched it. And you end with saying it's probably not helpful to take on China and, and have them, you know, just accuse them every day of something nefarious. That's certainly where we are today. But fill, fill in the blanks. Tell us, tell us what the piece was about. Yeah, well, thanks, Rich. I mean, the piece is basically an argument that the United States has stumbled out of the gates with coronavirus. I, I don't... I think it is undeniable that the early stages of this 
was were handled uh, very badly by China. I think they covered it up. They've done a variety of different things. And I, I wouldn't be surprised, Rich, if even more comes out. But I'm not sure it's going to change anything in the United States. So it's one thing that you can lay the origins and the some of the terrible first steps on China. But ultimately, we have not been up to the challenge uh, yeah, across hey, Kurt, the board. Can I just yeah. ask you about that? So when you look at the data and information coming out of China today, yesterday, I think two cases, the day before, three cases. Yeah. And they say most of those are from people who were traveling from abroad. Re- returning, um, returning to China. Yeah. Yeah. Returning to China. And, and so what faith do you put in that kind of data and information? Because part of the narrative is we were getting bad information from the beginning. So where are you now on whether that's better information? Do we take it to the bank? What do we do with it? It's it's really a good question, Rich. And I would I am forced to conclude that I think we have to treat almost all the information from China associated with the coronavirus with a grain of salt. I think we have to be careful with it. There is now a deep and profound incentive to downplay new cases. There are indications that parts of northern China are in lockdown now, and there may be more cases that have been reported. There's lots of issues associated with the origins story that, that frankly, need clarity. So, you know, I would be one of those people that would say, yes, there does need to be an international review of how this took place and how it played out. But, and that's what the Trump administration very much wants. I also think we need a domestic review about our own response. Now, I don't, now the Trump team is saying yes, completely on number one, but no on number two. I'm afraid, I'm afraid if we look closely at our own domestic response and the taking apart of domestic capacity, the underfunding, the tendency to ignore, you know, every manner of warning, the, challenges that some of the scientists and doctors have faced. I think it's all now pretty clear, but I think that storyline would be extremely not very good to the uh, President Trump and his team. But but yeah. anyway, the piece, Rich, basically argues that China, with an abundance of chutzpah, has, after causing this, has sought to claim a leadership mantle by providing global goods trying to you know convene groupings to to talk about you know best practices and the like but at the same time i think in the last couple of weeks there is an edge if i can say to chinese diplomacy and you see it in almost every country in asia in europe and other places so any country that would have the temerity to challenge china to see how this came about really faces the full Chinese ire. So look, I'm not sure. So China's soft power has taken a hit, Rich. They are providing more global goods and the like. But what people who criticize this argument that China is surging forward, they'll say a lot of countries really are uncomfortable with China. There's no doubt that that is the case. But we assume that the global order has to rest on benevolence or a degree of benevolence, and it does not. A global order could rest much more on a degree of fear and trepidation. And I'm afraid that without the United States providing a counterbalance, and I will tell you that the Trump counterbalance is, you know, many countries kind of feel like, you know, it's which which do you choose? You're going to get harangued either way. But ultimately, China 
could find itself in a situation where they have an uncontested position. And I hope that's not the case, and I fundamentally do not believe it is. A recurring feature in much of Asia's recent diplomacy is the belief in American decline. And each time we've come surging back after Vietnam, after the Cold War, the global financial crisis. And so the hope is, Rich, that we can take a number of steps that will allow us to assume a position of global leadership. It has to start domestically. It also needs to continue with weaving together a much closer relationship with allies. And it also means that there are some areas, and I'll conclude with this, where we need to work with China. So if we're going to effectively address the global manifestations of this terrible pandemic, a degree of cooperation between the United States and China is probably essential. And I'm all for that. I think it saves lives. And remember, in the height of the Cold War, during the worst period, when we had nuclear-tipped missiles pointed at each other on a hair trigger, the United States and the former Soviet Union worked together to deal with a similar disease situation in the 1980s with smallpox, eliminating smallpox on the global scene. That's a great answer, Kurt, and really effective set of stories and, and drawn from our history. I do have a question about the, I I just want to put the politics on this a little bit because the Trump approach, he will say, I'm the only one who's ever been tough on China. The Obama folks, Kirk Campbell, the Clinton administration, even the Bush administration, they were, it was all about engagement. Let's play nice with these guys. I'm the only one who took them on. Look at my trade deal. And I think that's disputable whether that's really was a winner in the end. And look what I'm doing now. Um, and it's some very personal, ambitious attacks. The naming of the virus, of the Wuhan virus, has resulted in a fair amount of hate crimes and racial bias towards Asian Americans in the United States. But it's a very deliberate political strategy to, about toughness and, and strength. And I think what you're calling out is it's a fairly short sighted strategy because you can still be strong and you can lead without doing it the way the current crew has decided to go about it. Yeah, look, I, I don't have as much problem with this idea of that it's the Wuhan virus, but in the end, I don't, I'm not really sure how much it changes. And, and I think there is a deliberate, you know, persistent effort to try to, quote, quote, pen this on China. And I would like to, at least some of that effort, which, you know, it is what it is. I'd like some of that effort to be focused instead on our own domestic capacity yeah. on testing, on the like. And so I just, in, in the end, many countries are going to be resistant to going down the line that, that you know, Secretary Pompeo and others have championed in terms of sort of nailing this clearly to China more directly. Ultimately, I do believe that there's going to be time and opportunity to review about how this came about. And I do not think it's going to turn out rich to be China's finest hour. I do worry that public opinion polls among both Democrats and Republicans, the floor has dropped out around China. 
very strong negative views across the board in a real sense that China has harmed us. And leadership is about helping mitigate some of the more difficult issues associated with this. What worries me is that I think President Trump, in a zeal to find someone to blame, is going to blame China and then is also going to try to blame Vice President Biden as being soft on China, which I don't think is accurate. And the truth is, if, if you're going to go by these ties, no group of people has more kind of complex financial and other ties between their institutions and China than the Trump team. I mean, the president owes millions and millions of dollars to Chinese banks. You've got people in the cabinet who have very shadowy connections with senior Chinese. You can go down the list. It's it's a very unusual set of circumstances. And I, I think it would be inaccurate and wrong for the president and his team to go after and the campaign to go after Vice President Biden in this way. And I think it will lead us into politics that are going to be extremely negative and really are not about the dramatic domestic challenges that the United States is facing in the next little while. Getting people back to work, income inequality, indebtedness. You just go down the list, Rich, almost all our issues that pre-existed the coronavirus have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Yeah. And I think we've seen the pandemic expose those weaknesses and flaws in, in really brutal ways. Let me ask you, Rich, so you've put me on the spot. What's happening? It's not clear to me what's happening inside India with respect to the coronavirus. How much has it spread? Now, you pointed out to me a couple of weeks ago, once we were talking about it, you said, look, you know, India has its share of challenges. This is nothing new. They'll figure out how to cope with it. What's your sense now as you look back with perspective? How is India coping? What do you expect? You know, are they going to be able to keep online, surge forward as the really the success story of the last five to 10 years? Yeah. Uh, great set of questions. You know, I, I will say federal system like like ours, uh, shared power between central government and states, but they've opted for a very different approach, which is strong central government response, a lot of very forceful mandates. No country has taken the steps that India has taken. It's been a national lockdown, can't go outside your house for even a walk or a jog. I mean, you're you're basically stuck inside your house. And they've just extended it for another two weeks after a month-long lockdown. It's had a huge impact uh, economically, but the numbers are still under some degree of control and far better situation than the European countries or certainly us, uh, Iran, uh, better than China. So what they are doing appears to be working. There is a debate in the public health community about whether they're testing enough people and whether this is just the beginning. And granted, all we have to take all those things into consideration. And so the next couple of weeks are really critical. But this lockdown appears to be working. They have a very sophisticated data gathering scheme about you know where the hot zones are. They've color-coded the entire country. They've set down rules for what you can do in those color-coded districts. That's pretty clear. It's hard. It's very hard for people, but at least it is, it's, it's an effort by the central government to get their arms around it. But I'd say we're you know, still, in these next two to three weeks, I think, are, are really, really critical. But a really good use of technology, 
really effective management from the central government. A lot of people have suffered at the beginning. A lot of migrant workers were stuck hundreds of miles away from their houses. A lot of that's still going on. So country that size, you're going to have problems like that. But let's hope, let's hope that the curve stays flat and eventually goes down. Rich, let me just ask real quickly. So who are the people in India that are leading this? Does, does the prime minister have a health team? Who's designed this particular approach, which in many ways resembles what we've seen in New Zealand and to a lesser extent in Hong Kong? Who came up with this overall approach? Yeah, I mean, from what we can tell, this really truly has been interagency, interministerial, uh, terrific health leadership there. Scientific advisor is very strong. Health ministry has done a great job. But the orders have come from the home ministry. These have been very, you know, with backed up by law and backed up by the military, backed up by the police. So people have really followed the orders themselves. And Prime Minister has been out pretty regularly. And, you know, you'll have the, the chief ministers, much like our governors, even going further than what the central government has put forward. So you see some states that have already extended their lockdown further. And they're under, again, under great pressure, just like we are here. But it's been this really kind of interesting mix of effective chief ministers, interagency process at the central government, and I would say across party too, which has been interesting. I think think the national crisis has gripped people in a way that, you know, I I haven't seen before and, and they seem to be responding. Rich, that's great. Thank you very much. Well, Rich, I think this brings us to the end of this first renewed, relaunched Tea Leaves podcast. It's great to see you again. I have to ask you, so tell us what a typical uh, day for Kirk Campbell is is like. Are we looking at your office right now? So I I explained, so we've got a lot of people at our house, daughters, friends visiting, all the stuff that are here. And so I did not have an office. When all things shook out at the beginning, I didn't have an office. So I had to petition my wife to get a desk in my bedroom, which I now have, so I can work here, which is, yeah. which is terrific. Uh, my wife, as you know, Rich is, on the, uh, is a governor on the Board of Federal Reserve, so she's working pretty much around the clock. We're, yeah. we're, in, a, we're in a situation here where, you know, we eat dinners together, we try to get outside every day. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, amidst the difficulty and the challenge, you know, we have to be thankful for our family, for yeah. some peace that comes with togetherness and and the camaraderie of dealing with this together. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad to hear that. And, and very similar experience over here. As you know, we have a ninth grader and twins in the sixth grade. And uh, they're all hard at work during the day. I realize I'm not very good at sixth grade math or English, it turns out. I will say Disney Plus has been a fatal blow yeah. to six, sixth grade home learning as as all the twins and I were watching like the third Star Wars movie middle of the day yesterday. So um, you've got, <laughs> you've, got a, yeah. um, you've got to balance it out. But um, I think everyone, you know, I think this is bringing out a lot of goodwill in people in not only in our neighborhood, but around DC and around the, the country. I think people are, are trying to get to the other side of this. And um, some of the questions we're talking about today are big geopolitical questions, but ultimately this is just about helping people out each day and making sure we get to the other side. 
Great words, Rich. Great way to conclude our session today. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week. All the best to all of you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in for this Tea Leaves episode. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time.